It's time to talk about Las Vegas with Ira. Each week, Ira David Sternberg talks with the celebrities, entertainers, writers, and personalities who make Las Vegas the most exciting city in the world. And now, here's Ira. As performers come back to Las Vegas showrooms and lounges, it's worth remembering the rich history of entertainment here. One unique individual is part of that entertainment history and also part of past pop culture. Here to talk about that unusual performer is my guest, Justin Martell. He's author, along with Elena Ray McDonald, of Eternal Troubadour, The Improbable Life of Tiny Tim, published by Jawbone Press. The book is available on Amazon and all the usual places. For everything about Justin Martell and his projects, go to GodBlessTinyTim.com and ShipToShoreMedia.com. And Justin, welcome to the show. Thanks, Ira. It's a pleasure being on the show today. You have an interesting background because you became interested in Tiny Tim long after he hit his prime. How did that begin with you? Well, I first encountered Tiny Tim actually when I was about seven years old. I My father would take me every fall to this really incredible, it's incredible in its own right, <laughs> separate from Tiny Tim, but he made it even more special. Uh, it was called a Halloween theme park called Spooky World. And it was in Berlin, Massachusetts, and we used to go every year during the, I would say, early to mid-90s. But I remember very specifically in 1994, waiting in line for the Haunted Hayride, and they had something called the Karaoke Stage. And Bobby Boris Pickett would come out and do the Monster Mash, and sure enough, Tiny Tim would come out and sing a few songs, too. And, you know, I was seven years old, so it's not like I was, um, I would say, uh, watching this from a very serious uh, analytical standpoint. But I do remember... Uh, him coming out and sort of how captivating he was. And then, of course, I've just sort of moved on that night. But that was sort of my only encounter with Tiny Tim. A few years later, when I was in high school, around the age of 15, I heard Tiptoe to the Tulips. And I think I went through uh, the same reaction uh, that most people did. At first, I was kind of shocked, kind of angry. But then <laughs> after listening to it a few times, I couldn't stop listening to it. And then at a certain point, I had to admit that I liked it. And when I went online to do some research and saw a picture of Tiny Tim, I, everything sort of clicked. And I said, oh, my God, it's that guy sort of the, from the corner, you know, memory of my mind that I remember seeing at Spooky World. And just sort of at that time, much to my mother's uh, dismay, uh, I sort of became obsessed with Tiny Tim. And I dug out the family record player, hooked it back up. And this was before everything had been re-released on CD or before YouTube and before these things were readily available. So I had to start tracking down all the original vinyl copies. It started with, you know, God Bless Tiny Tim and the, in the you know, first, the sort of seminal albums, but then extended to obscure singles and the bootleg tapes and bootleg concert CDs and all of that. And finally, I would say by the time I was in college, I said, you know, I should probably do something useful with this obsession. And that, <laughs> of, course, of course, culminated in the books that you mentioned, which finally came out in 2016. What's interesting, too, is that you initially became aware of him when you did a little research online. But unlike many of your generation, you didn't limit your research to just online seeking and searching. You went and got hold of people who had been connected to Tiny Tim in one way or another, either through business or through the personal connections. That's correct. At that time, there was, I would say, the person who was sort of the pioneer for 
if there wasn't Ernie, if Ernie Clark hadn't existed and he hadn't done all the early work that he did, my book would not have been possible. So Ernie Clark uh, at that time, and unfortunately he's passed away, but Ernie Clark at that time was sort of, I would say, the sort of the, the, the center of Tiny Tim fandom. And he, he did a lot of important work in terms of tracking down. He made compilations of all the obscure Tiny Tim singles from the 70s and 80s and even pre-reprise recordings from the early 60s. And pretty much if you wanted to find anything related to Tiny Tim, no matter how obscure, if it had been found and if it existed in some sort of tangible form, Ernie Clark had it. And Ernie was so gracious and generous with his time back then that he would take the time for a 15-year-old calling him up and just asking him questions about Tiny Tim and asking, do you have this recording and do you have that thing and, and that concert from the Zodiac Lounge in 1977 or the Thunderbird Motor Hotel and you know, that kind of stuff. So he really was, I would say, a major factor in those sort of formative years of becoming uh, obsessed with Tiny Tim. Ernie was very important in, I, one would say, sort of feeding that obsession, but of course, in, you know, doing the important research. And he actually did a lot of the important research before I, I would say, added to it. And you had people such as Ernie, but you also had people who didn't really want to talk to you at all about any of their dealings with Tiny Tim. Well, Tiny Tim, always, you get either, it's, it's, it's never in the middle. It's always an extreme reaction either way, whether it's just somebody listening to his music, people say either, ah, or they say, ugh, you know, and either people get it or they don't. And it's the same thing with people that knew him, worked with him, or were involved with him on a personal level. Either they're, they pick up the phone and they say, I am so excited to talk to you about one of my favorite people, Tiny Tim. Or they pick up the phone and they say, he was a freak. He got what he deserved. I don't want to talk about him or hear his name ever again. It's interesting, the dynamic involved when you, you don't have anybody in the middle like that. That's amazing. Totally. Were, were there any people that you contacted to interview for your research for the book that you were disappointed particularly about their reluctance to come forward? Yes. Um, I would say there were some members of Tiny Tim's uh, management and people who managed him, I would say, at, at periods of time in his career that where information isn't as readily available and they just kind of took the attitude of like, I don't want to talk about it. And also who cares? And it's like, well, no, people do care. Uh, at least there's at least, I could name at least five, you know? Um, so I, I would say that it was just some people sort of took a stance that, you know, it wasn't important. I'm really, I'm really fortunate and, and grateful for the fact that, that Tiny Tim's first wife, Miss Vicky was willing to um, come out and discuss her marriage to Tiny Tim at length. Um, and, and, you know, now she's sort of since moved on and, and doesn't discuss Tiny Tim anymore, but she was willing to talk for the book. And it's kind of, I think, the last time she's, she's ever really going to talk about him. So I was grateful for that. I was also grateful for the fact that Tiny Tim's widow, Miss Sue, uh, was very, also very generous with her time and gave a lot of really valuable and tremendous insight because they were only married for a year and a half. But it's important to note that they were married at a time when he knew he was going to die soon. So he was looking at his life, you know, in, in retrospect. So I think he shared with her a lot of things that he wouldn't have readily shared with others. Unfortunately, we weren't, I wasn't able to interview Tiny Tim's second wife, Miss Jan, who is also, she passed away in 2010. But shortly before that, she basically told me to get lost. She was one of those people that said, get lost. I, I, I don't want to, I don't want anybody writing any books about Tiny Tim. 
Well, she was definite about that. Do, do you know whether Miss Vicky or Miss Sue ended up reading your book when it came out? I know that they both did. And um, they both uh, were very complimentary. They both said that, you know, I think that they both had maybe a few critiques. They said, well, maybe this thing, you know, isn't totally how I would have said it. But they both said that it was that I got the closest out of anybody to, to I guess, telling the full story and then putting everything, you know, in the context. I mean, that was actually one of the things I was really proud of with the book was sort of reshaping uh, Miss Vicky's sort of image. I think that even from the time that she and Tiny announced their engagement, of course, the media always looked at it as kind of a freak show because she was 37 and she was 17 at the time. And they were always fascinated with it because I think also they were just shocked that Tiny Tim wasn't marrying essentially a female Tiny Tim, that she was uh, sort of very normal compared to him. And it, I mean, it showed later on because the marriage didn't last long. But I think also the media has sort of portrayed her as a gold digger through the years. And I was I reshaped it because I didn't take that stance at all. I think it was a young girl who got caught up in a media circus at the time, one of the biggest you know, uh, media events of the 1960s. And I think that it's clear from the fact that she left him. So, you know, only after a few years that she really wasn't after money and fame. So I really, I made an effort to sort of rework Miss Vicky's image. You mentioned earlier on that you, when you first heard him as a young man, that you were angry. Uh, and that was, I think, the term you used, angry. What were you angry about hearing his song or his performance? I don't know. It was just, this is a man? Really? This is a guy singing? Yeah, I think you said angry and shocked, I think, were the two words you used. Yeah, I mean, that's what it was. I just, you know, I think the person who showed it to me just said it was an older person who you know, obviously had been around in the 60s when during the height of Tiny Tim's fame. So they were saying, oh, yeah, he was a, yeah, this was a guy. He was a total freak. You wouldn't believe it, blah, blah, blah. And I, yeah, so I guess my my initial reaction was, I wouldn't say totally negative, but like definitely shocked. You know, this is a man singing, you know, this, what is this, what is this voice? What is this sound, this uh, high pitch with this, you know, warbly vibrato? And I just, I didn't, quite understand it or get it but i was but i was definitely there was a certain magnetism there i was drawn to it i whatever the whatever my reaction was i wanted to know more about it and i wanted to hear more so how did it turn around for you at what point did you become less shocked and more of a fan so to speak i got his first album god bless tiny tim and i listened to it all the way through and uh just the wide variety of uh styles and music and the um sort of cinematic sequencing of that album. It just feels like, I mean, it's a total celebration of all of Tiny Tim's varied vocal talents. And, you know, he, he's, and he's playing all these characters and, he, and it's jumping from music styles, from, you know, uh, turn of the century music to straight up 60s pop songs uh, to, and he's doing all the different voices. He's on the old front porch. He's Billy Murray and he's Ada Jones and he's the father you know, and uh, then on, then on, then I'd be satisfied with life. He, uh, he jumps to uh, country and western style. Stay down here where you belong. It's a song from 1916, but with Richard Perry's amazing production, you would think it's it sounds like an arrangement that was created for the Doors, and it's completely poignant for that time in 1968 because of the Vietnam War. So I was just totally blown away by it, and. Uh, and it's it's one of those things, too, that gets kind of forgotten, that when God Bless Tiny Tim came out, 
It made it to number seven on the U.S. Billboard charts. And that wasn't because, you know, completely that it was a joke. I mean, I'm, I'm sure that there are quite a few people who went out and bought it because of the novelty aspect. But Life magazine compared it to Sgt. Pepper's. I mean, you know, he was on the cover of uh, number uh, number 13 of Rolling Stone. This was not I mean, the Beatles praised the album. Bob Dylan praised the album. And then it was not, you know, they were, it was not shallow flattery. He was actually regarded positively by the rock intelligentsia of the time. And I think that that gets, it gets kind of forgotten now. I would totally, I, it, I think it's a real tragedy that God bless Scientim is not like sort of in the pantheon of great 60s albums, because I believe that it should be. He also, if you go down to his core, he was a music historian of a certain era. In other words, his tiptoe through the tulips, that was his signature song. And he sang it really as a tribute to the originator of the song, which who was Nick Lucas. Right, exactly. I think that's another thing that people don't quite understand when they listen to, well, it's, for instance, yeah, we'll take Tiptoe to the Tulips. It's funny because when you listen to the original version, Tiny Tim's version is not that far off. Yeah, his falsetto is, I would say, higher and perhaps a little bit more gimmicky uh, and a little bit, maybe a little more silly than uh, Nick Lucas. But Nick Lucas, uh, his original version is done in a countertenor. And I, yeah, I think it's, it's all about context with Tiny Tim. And if you don't totally understand the context, it kind of can come off as a freak show. Like even during the bridge where Tiny Tim does the like, if you watch the original Nick Lucas version, that's because there's a, in the bridge, there's a bunch of tap dancers doing that part. And, and then even just down to his vocal style, people say like, why does he have that vibrato? What is that weird, like sort of warble to his voice? And it's like, well, no. That's the sound of somebody who taught themselves to sing listening to old 78s. And he actually sort of absorbed, which he said himself, that like a vampire sucking blood, he sort of absorbed that sound and could create it with a frightening amount of authenticity. Yeah, that was the interesting part, or many, um, one of many interesting parts of Tiny yes. Tim. And, and, and then and you bring up the music historian aspect, and that was also another important thing is that in a time period before Wikipedia, before the internet, before we had information so readily available to us, Tiny Tim was, as you said, a walking encyclopedia of early turn-of-the-century music, which may otherwise have been forgotten if he was not singing those songs at the time. When he came out in the 60s, and he's singing, you know, On the Old Front Porch, and Then I'd Be Satisfied with Life from 1902, Stay on Here Where You Belong from 1916, that was the first time anybody was seriously singing those songs in like 50 years. I don't know if anybody's even done them since. And in that sense, I mean, there could have been songs that died with Tiny Tim. And that, and that is why we have, that's where we sort of get the, the name of my book, Eternal Troubadour, because he was a troubadour in that sense, that the songs lived with him and it was sort of, he saw it as his role and his duty to spread awareness of and perform those songs and bring people joy with those songs. And you know, he sort of had a message that a great song is a great song, whether it's from 1892 or 1992. And again, going back to the discussion about God bless Tiny Tim, he, with, and obviously produced expertly by Richard Perry, uh, was able to prove that point by making, by seamlessly working in those turn-of-the-century songs, also with like modern 60s pop songs, and making them work with 60s arrangements, but you're actually listening to songs from the turn of the century. It's amazing. Yes, he was a link to another period of time. 
Let's take a break. When we return, I want to talk to you about Las Vegas and Tiny Tim. My guest, Justin Martell, is author, along with Elena Ray McDonald, of Eternal Troubadour, The Improbable Life of Tiny Tim, published by Jawbone Press. The book is available on Amazon and all the usual places. For everything about Justin Martell and his projects, and he has many, go to GodBlessTinyTim.com and ShipToShoreMedia.com. We'll be right back. We'll be back with more Talk About Las Vegas with Ira in just a moment. Come discover a world of possibilities, a world of wonder, a world carefully curated with interactive, hands-on experiences that put the unique needs of children to play, explore, belong, and learn right where they should be, and that's first. Discovery Children's Museum. Our kids first. For more information, please visit discoverykidslv.org. Now let's get back to Talk About Las Vegas with Ira. Welcome back. I'm talking with Justin Martell. He's author, along with Elena Ray McDonald, of Eternal Troubadour, The Improbable Life of Tiny Tim, published by Jawbone Press. The book is available on Amazon and all the usual places. For everything about Justin Martell and his projects, go to both GodBlessTinyTim.com and, more importantly, ShipToShoreMedia.com. And... Justin, I referenced Las Vegas, and at one point, he was making, at that time, a weekly salary of about, as I understand it, about $50,000 when he performed at Caesars Palace. Is that right? That's correct. $50,000 for one, for, I think, a one-week engagement at Caesars Palace. Which doesn't sound like a lot these days, especially for the amount of time a week versus a one-night or a weekend performance performances, but... It was for that time. How did Las Vegas find Tiny, or how did Tiny find Las Vegas? Well, it was certainly for that time. And the other thing that's important to point out is that Tiny Tim, God bless Tiny Tim, and Sipto through the Tulip single all sort of broke around April, early April of 1968, when Tiny Tim uh, made his first appearance on The Tonight Show. Because right before that, he had been on Laughing, and yeah, he had gotten a tremendous amount of exposure, and there was sort of some buzz. But it wasn't, really wasn't until he was on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson and he comes out and performs and actually does an interview with Johnny, which is sort of his first time sort of speaking to the public. Um, and they start to hear, I would say, some of his unconventional, but uh, <laughs> nevertheless, nevertheless, very entertaining views. Um, and that's really where the, the sort of Tiny Tim personality starts to grow. And at that point, so now that's just April 1968. By August 1968, Tiny Tim, just a few months later, Tiny Tim, this new artist, is commanding $50,000 for a week-long engagement in Las Vegas. And it might have been two weeks. So you actually, look at, look at my book, because it certainly has the correct dates in there. But that was unheard of at the time. In fact, it was so unheard of that the, it caused the FBI to launch an investigation into Tiny Tim. Because they wanted to know if he was actually who he said he was. Was he actually like somebody else in disguise? Uh, a more established person was was uh, were, were, was Frank Sinatra and the mafia actually sort of pulling the strings uh, of this Tiny Tim character. I would point anybody to have a look, and I, I definitely quoted them in my book. But you can find these declassified documents on Tiny Tim, and they actually note in those documents that it is highly unusual for a new artist to be making that amount of money at Caesar's Palace at such a, a, presti- at a such a prestigious venue. But from what I understand, the show itself was uh, was quite the production. 
they had a magician who opened for Tiny Tim, and, and then at the end of his set, he would sort of rub a, a magic lamp, and from the mist, Tiny Tim would would appear. And they had backup singers and dancers, and d- at the end, during while he's singing tiptoe, uh, tulip petals, you know, rained upon the crowd. <laughs> um, and he and he had his full at that time. He had his full management team, which was of course Roy Silver, Ron De Blasio, Jeff Wald all of whom, if you look them up, were sort of titans uh, in the industry, both at that time and, and thereafter. In fact, Jeff Wald, his name has recently been in, in the news because he was married to Helen Reddy, and we just had the Helen Reddy biopic come out. In fact, Tiny Tim gave Helen Reddy uh, her first big break when she opened for him in 1970. Of course, that was no coincidence because she was married to his manager, Jeff Wald. Anyway, I digress. No, that uh, was a great digression. I, I didn't know that. That's great. Yeah. Yeah, but uh, but from what I understand, and, and of course there was you know like been a, a proper orchestra with uh, Richard Perry, who would go on to be one of the biggest producers of the '70s. He produced, he's, I think he's, I think he produced all four Beatles. You know, you're so vain for Carly Simon, uh, the Pointer Sisters. But he's there conducting the orchestra. I mean, it just seems like an absolutely amazing time. I don't think that it was a huge success in terms of turnout because. And that was really the problem with, with Tiny Tim was that they had that he and his management had to keep fighting at the time was the credibility issue. You know, I think for most people, Tiny Tim was a very titillating personality and sort of thing to see for a segment on Laughing or a segment on The Tonight Show. But I think a lot of people thought, well, okay, if I were to, am I actually going to go see Tiny Tim? Okay, he's going to do Tiptoe to the Tulips, but then what's he going to do after? I think anybody who actually went was ple- was pleasantly surprised. And for a good example of what Tiny Tim's concerts at Caesars Palace would have looked like, I would point anybody who's interested to listen to Tiny Tim live at the Royal Albert Hall, because that, that occurred only a few months later in October of 1968. So the set list and the sort of production uh, would have been very similar to what they were doing at Caesars Palace. What were the reviews like at the time that he performed at Caesars Palace? You know, it's interesting because anybody, anybody that, you know, in, in looking through and I've read, you know, obviously poured over thousands of articles and it seems that anybody who actually went and saw Tiny Tim with an open mind and even if they were cynical at first he would always win over a critic or an audience it's funny though the only negative reviews that I found at that time I think there's one from Chicago that gave a negative review of one of his concerts but actually if you look at the date it turns out it was actually before he'd actually done the concert there's some really funny things like that from the from the era. A, preempt, really, a preemptive I, review, evidently. A pre a preemptive negative review. Yeah. And um, but I find that actually, honestly, I would say if you look at if you look at the critical reviews of Tiny Tim at the time, his concerts, his albums, it's ninety percent positive, at least by anybody that's like an actual respected uh, you know journalist of the era or you know music journalist of the era. There's something you said that is intriguing that the FBI was looking at that situation with Tiny Tim and Caesar's Palace, did they suspect that there was possible money laundering going on and that Tiny was getting overpaid so that some of the money would go elsewhere? I think that that was the implication. They don't come out and and say that, uh, like, you know, in those exact words. But they just, yeah, it's basically, they. if you look at those documents, they talk to sources in New York, Chicago, in L.A., and they're kind of asking... Who is this guy? Okay, his real name's Herbert Corey. Aliases: Larry Love, Derry Dover, Tiny Tim, and then it, they're just—they do conclude they're sort of like 
sort of three pages of it, and by the end of it, they conclude Tiny Tim does appear to be who he says he is. <laughs> uh, <laughs> he does appear just to be a strange musician, but according to our sources, although all of our sources did note that it is very unusual for a new artist to be making that amount of money at Caesar's Palace, and we should look into whether Frank Sinatra and hoodlum elements associated with Frank Sinatra have something to do with this. So Tiny so they don't come out and, and say that explicitly, but that's the implication. Right. Tiny Tim's album after that should have been titled God Bless Jeff Wald <laughs> for getting him that kind of money for Caesar's Palace. Yeah, totally. Was he a one-trick pony in the sense of Las Vegas? What I mean by that is, other than that performance at Caesar's Palace, did he come back again and perform again, either there or at another casino? Yes, he did do other appearances in 1970. And I believe, as I mentioned, that's where Helen Reddy opened for him. And it's all a small world. As you mentioned, Jeff Wald was married to Helen Reddy, and that probably accounted for the beginning of her career, at least that element of it. Indeed. What was the most surprising thing you found out in your research in writing this book? Again, it's called Eternal Troubadour, The Improbable Life of Tiny Tim. Well, I think one of the biggest things, and, and one of the, the real things that I wanted to call attention to, is I think that there's sort of this like traditional point of view about Tiny Tim's career. One, again, that he was just like a bizarre novelty act who got 15 minutes of fame. And even if you, no matter what you think about Tiny Tim's music, it's an incredible success story. One of the most phenomenal success stories, I would say, of the last century. Just like the, the odds of him, you know, sort of coming from an impoverished family from Washington Heights, born to immigrant parents with bizarre looks and even more bizarre the singing style. Um, the, the, the actual odds of him overcoming all of those obstacles and becoming famous were, were astronomical. And so in that sense, even again, no matter what you think of his music, uh, I think some you know, respect needs to be given there. But another thing is that a lot of people say, and he always said, that he never, that for all the money that he made in the 60s, he never saw any of the big money and that crooked managers stole it all from him. And well, I think that there is certainly some truth to the idea that maybe some people took more than their share. I had access to over 20 of Tiny Tim's diaries while I was writing the book. And he wrote... Uh, everything that pretty much everything that he did every uh, every perverted thought every almost everything that he spent money on i mean it's all there and it's all documented it's not just the pages of the diaries every day it's also all of these uh, little addendums and things scribbled in the margins and it became very clear that he didn't make nearly as much money as he thought i mean he made by any normal standards a fair amount of money in the 60s but he didn't make nearly as much money as he thought he did, and he didn't have any real conception of where where the money would go. So he's got, you know, an army of agents, he's got a lawyer, he's got the booking agent, he's got the accountant, and then he's traveling with a band. You know, the band needs to be paid. You know, when he's doing Caesar's Palace, you know, and he's making $50,000 a week, well, how much of that is also just eaten up by the apparatus that is Tiny Tim at that time, which is huge. You know, so how much is he actually pocketing? And then especially when he has a pension for doing things like going into a, his hotel room and ordering everything on the menu for room service. And he never stopped and thought about where that money was coming from. And it was him who was paying for it. You know, so I think that I, I was able to sort of shine a light on that and show that maybe like it's not exactly true that crooked managers ran off with, with all of his money. I think that 
his own naivete and sort of irresponsibility, you know, with money, we're also responsible for that. Well, that's a great way to leave it. My guest has been Justin Martell. He's author, along with Elena Ray McDonald, of Eternal Troubadour, The Improbable Life of Tiny Tim, published by Jawbone Press. The book is available on Amazon and all the usual places. For everything about Justin Martell and his projects, go to GodBlessTinyTim.com and ShipToShoreMedia.com. Justin, thanks for being on the show. Thank you very much, Ira. See you next time. You've been listening to Talk About Las Vegas with Ira. Each week, Ira David Sternberg talks with the celebrities, entertainers, writers, and personalities who make Las Vegas the most exciting city in the world. Yeah, baby.